0: But that's was about, oh, 30, 35 miles across the actual border. So that's where I picked up my, my tactical call sign, it's Honski, H-A-W-N-S-K-I. And I had a friend on another squadron whose name was Jerkowski, and he said, well, you know, if you're gonna fly in the east zone, I guess we'll have to give you a Russian sounding name. So I became Honski and I've been Honski ever since.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we speak with Laurie Horn, who is a retired member of Parliament and former career fighter pilot in the Canadian Forces. Laurie has some great stories of flying the CF-104 Starfighter in Europe as part of the NATO commitment for low-level ground attack. If you like what you're hearing, then from the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help us cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air, as well as receive a Cold War Conversations coaster, this year's sought-after household accessory. Just go to ColdWarConversations.com and click on the Support the Podcast menu option. Thank you so much for our latest patrons, Christine V. Wood, John Paul Kleiner and Stephen. So on to the podcast, we welcome Laurie Horn, a.k.a. Hornsky, to our Cold War Conversation. Laurie, welcome to Cold War Conversations. Delighted to uh, have you on.
0: Thank you. Great to be here with
1: you, Ian. You've got some interesting stories, which I, th- I think we c- we will absolutely um, come on to. But the 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 first thing I wanted to ask you was, why did you join the Royal Canadian Air Force?
0: Well, it, it goes back to when I was a, a young boy. Uh, we lived in Winnipeg, which is the centre of the country, and we vacationed or we spent the summers on Lake Winnipeg. And on Lake Winnipeg there was a RCF base named Gimli. And when we would be on the beach, you know, doing things that four and five-year-old kids did every summer, two or three times, a T-33 or an F-86 would come ripping down the beach at, uh, you know, four foot six and the speed of heat. <laughs> and we all sort of said, ah, that's great. You know, need to do that. And, and you know, as time went by, I grew up and and or <laughs> grew up a little bit, haven't finished yet, and, uh, you know, went to high school and, and wanted to get an education. So applied to uh, what was called the regular officer training plan where the Air Force would pay for you to go to university, pay for you to live at home, pay you a salary along the way. So uh, I said, that's that's for me. So I did that. But my intent was to join and, and be a pilot. So I went to first year engineering at University of Manitoba and uh, majored in bridge and basketball and found out at the end of the year, those hadn't been on the curriculum. So at 18, uh, I went directly into pilot training and did my, my training at Gimli and got my wings at, at 19 and, and carried on from there.
1: Right. And, and what did pilot training involve? Well, we, uh, at that time, there was about a two-year period where the very
0: first airplane you flew was a jet. And that was the Tudor, which the snowbirds continue to fly to this day. So I came off the street, never having flown anything else, and hopped into a jet. Uh, it was a simple jet, but it was a jet. So we did 100 and, oh, about 160 hours on the Tudor. And then we went on to, in those days, uh, the advanced training was on the T-33. And we did another, I think, 75 hours on the T-33. And then we got our, our pilot swings and then went on from there. My first assignment was as a T-33 uh, qualified flying instructor. So I did that for uh, two different bases for about four and a half years before moving on to the, uh, to the starfighter, to fighter training.
1: Right. Okay. And the, the T-33, what, what, was, what was that more commonly known as?
0: Uh, T-bird. The the technical name was Silver Silver Star. Uh, There was a a T-Bird. It was a derivative of the F-80, which was a Korean War uh, fighter. And there was an American T-Bird and a Canadian T-Bird. Ours was quite different. We had a a much bigger engine. We had a Rolls-Royce Neen 10 engine with 5,100 pounds of thrust. The American T-Bird had an Allison engine, which was only 3,600 pounds. So our airplane was was a much better performer. I've got about 3,500 hours in that airplane over the years and, and loved it. It took me an awful lot of places with the... Uh, you can carry a luggage carrier with golf clubs in it, and a whole bunch of other things. Or you can pick up, you know, a lot of pounds of salmon, or crabs, or lobsters, or stuff from somewhere. It was a great old airplane.
1: Right, and was it single seat? No, it was
0: a two seater. The F eighty was a single seater originally, but then the training versions came out as a T thirty three, and it was
1: it was a two seater. Okay, okay, and you and you said that uh, you then subsequently converted onto the uh, the Starfighter.
0: Yeah, I flew the T-bird for as an instructor for about four and a half years, and then converted onto the Starfighter. Flew the T-bird for the rest of my career, even when I was flying Starfighters or or Hornets, as sort of a, a secondary airplane. So I flew that airplane for thirty almost thirty years, but transitioned to my first fighter uh, with the Starfighter in uh, 1971.
1: Right. Okay. And and that conversion was in uh, Canada, I believe, at Cold Lake. In, in Canada.
0: At- at, at Cold Lake, yeah, and that is the, that's the our biggest fighter base in, in Canada. It's been the, the training base for Starfighters and F-18s and whatnot since, uh, since about 1954.
1: And how different was that to fly to the uh, T-Bird? Well, the uh,
0: Starfighter was a much more difficult airplane to fly, and I sort of hesitate when I say that, because it's relatively easy to fly, but it was very, very fast. Yeah, I mean it was a you know Mach two airplane. The T-bird was limited to uh, Mach point eight, so it was a you know big difference. The T-bird actually had wings uh, to turn. The the one o four had little stubby things that they called wings. Uh, it would bank as if to turn, uh, but it would go like like the hubs of hell uh,
1: in the straight line. And it was it was tremendously fun to fly. So it was really like flying a a <laughs> rocket rather than a plane.
0: Yeah, it it, it was. Uh, it, it you know would not turn very well. The wing loading was extremely high, uh, but the thrust was was amazing. If you had a uh, you know a clean clean airplane, I, nothing hanging from the wings at all, on a forty below a day at Cold Lake, uh, if you could get the landing gear up in time, you could be you have to bring it out of afterburner at the end of the runway, or you'd be you'd be pushing supersonic, and that was on a, a thirteen thousand foot runway. So it accelerated like like a demon to wow. get the gear up you know, the takeoff speed was about 180 knots in that configuration. Going through 160, you put the gear handle up. The gear wouldn't fold because there's a, a weight on a wheel switch that would prevent that. And then as soon as you as you started to break ground, the, the gear would start to fold and then you just watch the, the gear lights. If the lights went out before 260, then you held it down and, and pressed. If the lights didn't go out, well you'd have to pull another burner or you'd be tearing doors off and stuff. But if if the lights did go out and you held it down that at the end of the runway you'd be going through about six hundred and twenty knots. And uh, you know, approaching supersonic, so it was uh, it was blindingly fast,
1: yeah. Yeah, I've seen some footage of some west German style fighters where they're sort of like yeah. launching them from what looked like missile launchers or something like that.
0: Well, they had a there was something called the NF 104, uh, the Germans did it, the Americans did some, it was never sort of a practical, it was more of an experimental thing than anything else. But they would they would have a, a Jado style rocket uh, on the airplane. And they would launch it from a sort of a standing start, you know, pointed up kind of thing. And the JATO, it wasn't called JATO, but it was that kind of thing, would get the airplane going fast enough so it could fly on its own. And flying on its own in the clean configuration meant you had to be doing, you know, about 200 knots.
1: Okay. And you're then posted to Europe?
0: Yes. We had three squadrons in Europe at the time in one Canadian air group. We had been much larger in you know, earlier days. Uh, you know, we had the Sabre in Europe and the CF-400. Then we converted to the Starfighter. We had 12 squadrons at one point uh, with the Sabres and cf 100s We eventually wound down to three squadrons of Starfighters at uh, baden Solingen in what we called the Four Wing in, in southern Germany.
1: Right, right. And how how did you did you fly the Starfighter to Europe, or or was it shipped no. over? Because it's so no, not- it was.
0: It, it, yeah, it's not a great cross for transatlantic airplane. We did ferry airplanes. I didn't. But later on, we did ferry some airplanes across to to Europe when we were uh, you know getting out of the starfighter business, flying some of them home and so on. But that was sort of island hopping on the way. But the airplanes were, were in situ. The first ones went there, oh, I want to say 64, 65, somewhere in that. So we had 54 airplanes committed. When we got down to three squadrons, we had fifty-four airplanes committed to NATO, and then we had another dozen or so there as, uh, as, as sort of reserves.
1: Right, and and was the Starfighter <clears throat> intended to defend Canada as well from Soviet incursion? No, no. it was, no. It was in, always in Canada. Had, plane, was
0: it? it? It was it was strictly a NATO asset. Uh, we had the the Voodoo, the CF one hundred and one, uh, for our. Primary air defense fighter in uh, in North
1: America, but the Starfighter was was strictly a, a NATO committed asset. Right, and why was that? Because of its short range, or uh,
0: short range, and uh, you know it, we got into the, the the initially with the Starfighter, we were in the nuclear strike and reconnaissance role, and the airplane was extremely well suited for that. It would have been, I mean, it would have been a fine interceptor in Canada, but it, our airplanes didn't have uh, a beyond visual range missile capability, which obviously you needed as an air defense fighter in North America. And the Voodoo had, um, had the, um, the Falcon, which was an IR missile, and they had the Genie, which was a, called the Air 2A, I think, which was a nuclear-tipped uh, air-to-air rocket, actually not a missile, but a rocket. But with the Starfighter, we were committed in Europe to the nuclear uh, strike role and reconnaissance, and that changed in 71 or so to being conventional attack.
1: Prior to to seventy one, the starfighter was intended to launch a a nuclear missile, or or was it a free fall bomb?
0: They they were free fall bombs of of a, a variety of of yields from uh, you know from from little they're all quote unquote tactical nukes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I can't remember what the upper limit was; was classified anyway. Um, but they had various sizes of weapons. But in the generally speaking, sort of two thousand pound weight class
1: right okay and how what was the 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 training like to to do that because obviously it must be going through your mind this is a really different ball game to launching a conventional weapon
0: for sure i only flew the airplane in europe in the conventional role we trained in the nuclear role in, in cold lake but we were sort of transitioning to conventional by the time we arrived in europe but you know, the, the role on the nuclear strike side was, was single ship, uh, lower in the snake's belly and faster in the speed of heat. And the missions were, most of them were probably one way, uh, meaning you weren't going to get back to uh, Baden or Lahr, the other bases we had at the time. Hopefully you would get back to a uh, secure airfield, at least on our side of, uh, you know, a, a bad guy land. Uh, but the targets were all pre planned. Um, people had assigned targets, whether they were in East Germany or Czechoslovakia. there were some a little bit deeper than that. Those were definitely one way, uh, one way missions and they were, uh, the training was, was, uh, intense. The training was very demanding the ground handling of course of the weapons. We didn't own the weapons. The Americans owned the weapons. So they were there as the custodians of, of all the weapons. And there were things called no loan zones around the, around the aircraft. And no one person could ever be inside that circle. And there's some some stories about you know tempting the American guards. And one of our guys walked up, one guy one day, and said, uh, uh, "You know, Private, what would you do if I stepped across that line?" And because the airplane was armed with a with a nuke,
1: yeah.
0: And a private American soldier said, "Well, I'd call my sergeant." Why would you call your sergeant? Well, sir, I'd call my sergeant to haul your dead ass out of here. And and they and they meant it. You know, it was it was serious business. They didn't screw around with nukes as they as they should. And uh, I mean, our guys were very very good. They used to typically win the uh, the weapons meets over there, or do extremely well. And, and our recce guys were also extremely well qualified. They would routinely win what was called Royal Flush, which was the big uh, recce competition in 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 those days. So that was sort of the nuclear and recce role. And then of course things changed quite a bit when we got into the uh, conventional role.
1: Right. Okay, and sorry, sorry. I'm just interested in, in the, the, the nuclear side, and we will get on to the, the sure. conventional side yeah. as well. Presumably, if this is a free-fall bomb, you, you need to launch it from some altitude. So are you effectively lobbing it? Well,
0: it was low-altitude. They were all low-altitude deliveries, uh, and they had a variety of, of uh, toss uh, techniques. I mean, you would basically – everything was timed. You had timers in the airplane. You had a timer reference point uh, that you would visually or by radar. They could deliver them by radar as well as as visually, and it was very accurate with radar as well. And you would hit the timer reference point. You'd be on speed, on track. Uh, hit the timers, and when the timers, it was programmed depending on wind speed and all the rest of that. Hmm. And when the timer went off, then you would do uh, about a four to five G pull uh, with the with the pickle button down. Uh, when the second timer when it hit the second time, the weapon would release. There would be a big thump because you're dropping you know, two thousand pounds or something off the airplane, and then you, they would just continue to uh, to pull over the top and uh, you know escape the other way. So you're and
1: effectively almost pull. doing a loop, not quite a loop. You
0: were doing yeah, you're, you're basically doing a, a an a loop and, and coming back and, and yeah. hitting one eighty out from from where you came. There are other types of deliveries, but that was sort of the primary uh, the, the primary mode of delivery
1: presumably you know that you you've got goggles that protect you from the flash and things yeah. like that as as well
0: yeah they had gold the visors were you know gold tinted so that uh, you know wouldn't, you would get blinded by the flash and ideally of course you'd be going the other way and not looking back over your shoulder when this when the thing went off
1: yeah and i mean obviously you you weren't you you were training to do that but you know yeah. how did you feel about that aspect because i mean that that sort of weapon is pretty indiscriminate i know i get i get it's sort of like low yield and a, a military target but it is you know a weapon of mass destruction
0: well it it's yeah i mean it was a pretty obviously pretty deadly device i mean obviously there were a whole bunch of other people doing the same thing on, on yeah. both sides of the uh of the equation and it was just uh you know the targets you know were were military targets there were no that I'm aware of there were no sort of civilian targets at all. They were all military installations of one one kind or another. And uh, you know, if you're if you're there on an installation then well, sorry, by definition you're a bad guy and that's that's just doing our job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As they no, as they no. would do the other way. Yeah, no, completely understood. Completely understood. <laughs> um and you you're flying very low. So you you're navigating by radar or by um uh, well vision
0: Visually, primarily, uh, but the weather in Europe, of course, uh, especially in those days before they cleaned up the Ruhr valley, was was pretty awful, and you were routinely in cloud. Now we would we had a system of uh, of radar predictions that we pioneered. We actually, a, a Canadian navigator pioneered it, and it was like they would they would develop a radar prediction. So you'd have a visual map on one side and your radar prediction on the other side of the of the map on your knee, and you could basically follow the radar prediction just like Picking out lakes and other things, uh, and was extremely accurate now we would we, the radar maps we would fly uh, at sort of seven hundred and fifty feet plus or minus two fifty, so you' had to be as low as five hundred feet in cloud, uh, smoking along at five hundred and forty knots with a with a two thousand pound nuke under your under your belly uh, and and do everything without, without any visual reference to to the ground. Uh, we got to be you know very accurate with that
1: Wow. I mean, you've got to be, I mean, you know, at at that height, you've got pylons and other stuff there as well. So So, you've got to be right on the button, haven't you?
0: You've got to be on track because there's a lot of towers in in Central Europe. And so we spent an awful lot of time, you know, sanitizing the route uh, kind of thing. And and we had safety altitudes all the way along that, you know, if you're below that altitude, then you might be below 500 feet. You know, the, the altitude would guarantee you at least 500 feet over over any obstacle within, I think, five nautical miles of track kind of thing.
1: Right. Okay. So,
0: yeah, so we spent a lot of time making sure towers were plotted properly and so on.
1: Yeah, somebody didn't put one up since your last trip. And, and,
0: yeah, and, and we did, uh, before I got there, we did have uh, a guy at night
1: uh, take out a,
0: uh, it was a construction crane. And the crane was up, which probably shouldn't have been, but he shouldn't have been that low and the cable was hanging down from the crane and he screwed up somehow and he was below that. And what got his attention was when he, when he hit the, the cable hanging down, but the, the wing on the starfighter is so sharp, it just, it sliced through the sliced through the cable and he carried on, but it got his attention. So he, at least he didn't hit the ground. So he brought yeah. the airplane home and, and he yeah, had a, it had a gouge in the, in the, uh, in the wing. But if that had been any other airplane, of course it would have just destroyed it.
1: Yeah. It would have taken the wing off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow! Lucky guy. Yeah, you could say that. Um, so, in in the conventional actually, actually his, his,
0: his, his name sorry, his name was Guy. It was Guy Faby, but that's that's an aside.
1: It's <laughs> uh, coincidence. Good coincidence. Um, so, yeah. so in the conventional role, did you know exactly what targets you were going to be hitting as well?
0: We we did. Uh, we had pre-planned uh, targets. There's sort of two kinds. We had what we called plan actuals, where you know when we exercised and so on, they you know, they'd call an alert and so on. We'd go in and we'd we'd plan our our plan actuals and it would, you know there'd be four ships or multiples of, of four ships. And if it was a sixteen-plane kind of uh, attack, then we would you know the, the mass attack lead would get the the frag and would would sort of pick out the uh, the desired main points of impact, that sort of thing and then hand it down to each of the four-ship leads, and they would go off and plan their own part of it. Uh, and then they would get back together and brief the whole the whole thing. Uh, the four ships were were simple. Uh, obviously, 16 ships were a lot more complex. And we really started developing those by a guy named Billy Sparks from Kentucky, who was an American uh, exchange officer, major, had been a wild weasel in, in Southeast Asia, had a terrific story of being shot down uh, around Hanoi, he was, I think, the furthest North guy to to ever get picked up and, and rescued. And he introduced Of course, they used a bunch of those tactics in Southeast Asia with the mass formations and so on. So he kind of introduced that to us, and then we developed it from from there. So it was a, uh, you know, we were never single ship. In that case, we were always, you know, we operated in twos, but always in packages of four normally, and then and then multiples of four. And most of the targets, like I say, we had plan actuals, real targets. Uh, for exercise or training, of course, we would pick. Missile sites, or ammo dumps, or airfields, or or whatever to to practice against. So it was it was all quite realistic, and there was only, well, from Baden, you know, 150 miles or so away, there were people that wanted to kill you. So, hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War.
1: that you're helping to preserve Cold War history, just go to ColdWarConversations dot com slash donate to find out more.
0: You know that was uh, the sort of environment we we lived in, and we uh, and we we loved it. I mean, it was so much fun to fly, and there was a certain amount of intensity to it and uh, and relevance to it because you know not far away uh, were the were you know in those days the real bad guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, so how, how did you, if, if you knew you were going to hit somewhere in East Germany, I'm, I'm assuming was, was it East Germany, sure. Czechoslovakia, the area? East
0: Germany, Czechoslovakia,
1: primarily. Yeah. Okay. So you, you obviously can't practice that low level flying into East Germany. So how did you, <laughs> well, do, I did, but, well uh, sure yeah, I we'll, we'll come on to <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. We'll come yeah. on to that. But, um, how did you allow for, you know changes in the terrain you know things like pylons and stuff like that because you're not going to know they've put up a load of pylons in somewhere in east germany
0: well there was i mean there was um you know satellite imagery and and so on so we had a pretty good idea and you know in those days it, in the conventional role it was it was visual now you could go you know you would you could take a, you know, a four ship in cloud in and formation, but you wouldn't cross the border uh like that because you'd be a, a you know a sitting duck at, at five hundred or seven hundred and fifty feet. So as long as you could break out, you could fly, you know, in cloud, the same sort of radar uh, navigation exercises or things we did in the nuclear role, but in a close formation of, of four airplanes, and then you know, break out visually before you get to, to Bad Guy Land and then and then carry on visually from there. You'd be at you know minimum of five hundred feet in cloud before that and after that then you'd be down as low as you could you know possibly go. And generally, you cruised at 450 knots, but as soon as you hit Madagal land, you were going at at least 540. And you know, you had to have pretty good lookout, and the weather was always, you know, often pretty crappy. And uh, you know, we lost a number of guys, not as many as the Germans, because we, you know, we were always low level, always high speed, always shitty weather, and and normally always in rolling terrain. So it didn't take much of a an error in judgment to you know come face to face with something you couldn't fly through. And you know, I've had personally had the stick buried in my lap you know, a couple of times saying, should I hope this works? And it always right. did because I'm here, but you know, occasionally it didn't. So it was, uh, I mean, it was intense and you really had to be heads up. And, uh, you know, you had to have some discipline about looking ahead in crappy weather as to, okay, when, yeah. you know, how far can I press this? And when do I have to, you know, cry uncle and, and pull up and, and abort. Yeah. And we lost, I think, 39 guys or something like that, who but not all of those, that, that specific scenario, but, but we lost uh, quite a few guys in those days.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think people forget about that because you know people talk about the Cold War and and it being yeah. not a a shooting war, but people forget you know the um, the service people that that died in training accidents and you know situations. Well, we, you just described. Yeah, I mean Canada,
0: I forget the exact number, but we lost upwards of a thousand people, not flying F eight uh, starfighters, but between Sabres and cf-100s and starfighters and f-18s and and army you know on the ground over there in various ways we lost you know pretty close to a thousand people in the in the cold war so yeah it wasn't a shooting war but uh, a lot of people died nevertheless
1: were you told what to do if you were shot down or or captured well you carried uh, you know we carried a a, a kit
0: with some uh, some east german money and some survival, you know escape maps and, and that sort of stuff and and, and basically, it was uh, you know get out your compass and start start walking west and, and uh, you know stay out of sight, stay under cover, and don't travel during the day and avoid roads and you know, all that kind of stuff. We also took escape and evasion training in the Netherlands in uh, at, at Susterburg, which was an American base in in, in the Netherlands. And there was an escape and evasion course that we would take there, which was uh, you, know, you know as realistic as you could as you could make it, but it was fairly you know fairly brutal. And not a lot of fun, but of course not nearly as as much not fun as the actual situation would be. Mm-hmm. So, you, I mean, you're, realistically, your chances—if you punched out over there—your chances of of getting home were probably pretty slim.
1: The interrogation training in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So, so they were sort of effectively trying to simulate what it would be like if no. you were captured and what yeah. questions they would ask. And did it involve some? Mm-hmm physical roughing up it sounds oh, yeah. like you did
0: oh oh yeah i mean these guys were all trained um trained uh, interrogators you know from our side who would have you know done it to the uh, to the bad guys if, if they got captured but they uh i mean they would uh, basically starve you uh, they would get you up at all hours of the night and uh, you know run you through fields and and just you know try to wear you down wear you physically down and then they would do the interrogation bit and they would uh, you know, they would have a, a uh, you know, an escape route or, you know, they'd drop you off. The last part of the exercise was they would drop you off and you had sort of 20 k or 25 k or something to go to a, a safe house and they would have the army out, the Dutch army and, and dogs and everybody out there trying to track you down. And you'd be in, in pairs and you would make it to the safe house or not. Uh, but if you made it to the safe house, then guess what? They lied. It wasn't, it wasn't safe at all. So they would they would catch you and they would uh, you know bind your hand and, and you know hobble you and, and tie your hands behind your back and put a a bag over your head that, that some of the guys had bags that people had honked in and uh, then they would, then they would run you run you through the woods and of course you you're blind so you'd be tripping and falling and whatever and they'd do that for a while and then they'd they take you to a, a camp and they would uh, have you you know still blindfolded you knew the other guys were around because you could hear noises and stuff. And they would, uh, you know, put you up beside the speakers and play, you know, really loud, loud music in your ears and so on, everything just to break you down. And they would take you in and, and go put you through a number of interrogations. And it was, of course, the old, you know, name, rank, serial number, date of birth kind of thing. And they would, you know, play all kinds of games with you, which were, you know, realistic. And, uh, you know, it was just a good exposure, you know, probably not as bad as the real one would be, but bad enough that sometimes you know, the one I did said, you know, you lose track that this is this is just an exercise. This isn't real, and it's going to be over, you know, in a day or two. But you get so taken up by it. And uh, we had one guy, a very close friend named John Bagshaw, uh, who was a oh, tough guy, grew up in the north in, in Canada, and he started when it started playing the music. He started singing at the top of his lungs, and everybody else started. I wasn't in this particular one, but everybody else started singing as well, and it was driving the guards crazy. So they said, look at it, you know, you gotta stop singing. You're driving us nuts. He said, Will you stop singing if we if we take your hood off and give you a cigarette? He said, Sure, I'll do that. So they took his hood off and gave him a cigarette and he smoked a cigarette and, and that was great. And then he started singing again. So yes. so, so he'd lied. So this <laughs> went on for, for a while. So there were lots of games played played in both ways and uh, and it was a good exposure to just, you know, a taste of what it would really be like and you know, what it wouldn't be really like is not pretty. The biggest thing was, you know, hang on long enough so that whatever information you might they might force out of you was not going to be of any value anyway. Yeah, but it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't one of those fun things you got to do.
1: No, no, it definitely doesn't sound like it, but it it's interesting, you know, the the detail there. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're flying at five hundred feet, the the ejection seat still works, and you can still parachute safely. Can you? Well, oh, the
0: Starfighter had a. It had a, had a great seat. It was called the Lockheed C two seat, and it. Uh, we lost. We had two hundred. I want to say round numbers. Two hundred and forty airplanes. We lost. We lost half the fleet, over a twenty five year period, uh, to accidents and 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 so on. And uh, I can't remember the number of ejections we had, but a lot. And the seat was extremely reliable. Uh, there was maybe one or two failures of the seat. One, uh, again in. I think his name was Zemek uh, When he ejected, he separated from the seat, and the seat tumbled uh, and hit him, uh, hit him in the head, and then killed him. You know, mm-hmm. Came down dead. Uh, I think we had one other failure, but the seat was incredibly reliable. You, you know, even people who were outside the envelope. I mean, it was a zero zero, sorry, zero, zero 90 seat. I think you know, ninety knots on the ground, you'd, you'd make it. So if you were airborne, you know, the seat always worked. Obviously, there were, if you had a you know super sink rate on. That's going to eat up what the seat can do. But uh, if you gave the seat half a chance, it it always saved your ass.
1: Right. And what what was the starfighter like to land? What was it like at low speed? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, there's no such thing as low speed in the starfighter. <laughs> yeah. it, it 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 was fast. I mean, the, the, the cleanest airplane. You're uh, you're your 170 knots over the fence, and touchdown was 150 knots. And then you added if you had anything on the airplane, fuel tanks, weapons, whatever, then it went up from there. The, uh, and the two seater, we normally flew with four tanks, tip tanks and, uh, pylon tanks on. And it was, it was a pig. Uh, it would, the takeoff speed in that one was about 220 knots. The tire speed, I think, was 239. So if you're on the ground doing 239 knots, then your tires were probably going to disintegrate. If you were doing a flapless approach, uh, in the airplane with a clean airplane, your speed on final... I want to say it was about 220 knots, something like that. So it was, it was smoking. You, uh, you know, you didn't. Uh, there was no such thing as as forced landing the airplane with the engine out. There was a procedure. I only ever heard of one guy who did it. He actually did it twice. Uh, but if if the engine quit, there was there. You know, it was normally suicide to try to to land the airplane. So you would just punch out.
1: Right. And did it? Was it slowed right. with a drogue chute? Yes. Yeah, we had oh. a drag chute.
0: Uh, and that was, uh, I mean, you couldn't have flown the airplane without it. it. Uh, you know, we would do no shoot landing depending on the length of the runway. And, you know, if you didn't want to, cause if you're away somewhere and you use the shoot, well, you'd have to pack it yourself, which is a pain in the ass. Yeah. So you try try, try not to use the shoot, but, uh, but routinely, uh, for routine operations, you, you use the shoot all the time.
1: And th- did you have to practice like autobahn, uh, takeoff and landing or was it always nope. from your own airfield?
0: No, it was always from our own own airfield. We didn't do that. I mean, the airplane could have done that, but um, you know, it would use it would have used a lot more Audubon than some other airplanes.
1: Yeah, but at least you got the narrow wingspan. So.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh well, no. There was you know, you could have done it. It was not we just never uh, never practiced that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you were in. You you said you had competitions and things like that. So were these competitions against the other NATO air forces?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, two ATAF and four, A ATAF was in the north, four ATAF was more in the south, and there was a, a tactical weapons meet, an absent tactical weapons meet every year, uh, and it was sort of two ATAF against four ATAF, and in four ATAF, there was us and the Yanks and some Brits, and the French were invited, and the... Dutch. I'm sort of his name, because you know, between two and four o'clock, there was all the NATO allies. The, oh, sorry, the Italians and the Turks were with us down south. Uh, so there was about generally ten or so countries uh, competing, and they were, uh, you know, they were all over uh, all over Central Europe at various bases uh, in in Baden and, and you know all over, and they were tons of fun. Uh, we were in. I was involved in in a couple of them as a chase pilot, and then organizing the one in in Baden. And the the Yanks had gotten a terrible beating in uh, 1972 in uh, Florence in Belgium, and they were kind of embarrassed. And so we were doing the next one in Baden two years later. And I and another guy organized a practice meet. And the main aim of that one uh, was to I hope too many, not too many Americans, listen to this. But the name, well, one of the aims of that one was to teach the Americans how to how to do this, uh, and and they learned very well, and and they did they did very well because they were they're were embarrassed in '72. Uh, so, I mean, all that to say, there was a lot of it was a competition, but there was a ton of learning that went on, you know, between the between the air forces and everybody was yes competing hard, but you know, ultimately we were all on the same team, so we were, you know, we'd share techniques and share secrets or not, you know, secret secrets, but. Uh, share techniques and, and training procedures and stuff like that. So everybody, everybody learned a lot, and they were they were tons of fun.
1: Yeah. And how how were they scored? I mean, was it on the basis of being able to navigate round waypoints? And well,
0: it was. Yeah, there was a, a variety. I mean, there was there was weapons delivery, you know, on the various ranges. Yeah. And there were uh, what we called equivalent targets, EQ targets, uh, and those were navigation exercises where there would be people, there would be a, a target, you know, a little bridge or something like that, and there would be judges on the ground. And you had to be within within 100 feet for for max points. You had well, you had to be within 100 feet, either either side, or you got zero because you didn't hit it. Uh, and to get max points, you had to be within three seconds. And maybe and you beyond three seconds, you had you had points deducted. So it was pretty pretty exacting. Yeah, uh, you had to be pretty pretty damn accurate. Yeah, and and bear in mind you're you know you're 540 knots, so you know you didn't have a lot of room for error.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> um. And and talking of navigation, tell me about your uh, inadvertent <laughs> flight into uh, airspace you shouldn't be in.
0: <laughs> well it was it was a it was a beautiful day. I think it was September actually it was September eleventh, it was my own nine eleven. Uh nineteen seventy two. And uh, I'd been away on leave <clears throat> and came back into the squadron a day early and or came back from leave a day early and wandered down to the squadron to see what was going on. And and we were doing a, a close air support exercise with the Belgian army up north somewhere and showed up just to have a coffee. And somebody, a guy named Dave Burroughs was sick and the guy running the ops test said, Hey, Burroughs is sick. Do you want a trip? I said, tell yeah!" So I went and threw my, threw my gear on and, and uh, got a, a 30 second brief and said, just take this. It was called IP orange. There, we had some pre-planned routes that would get us partway to wherever, and then we would have cut and paste maps after that. He said, "Take this, take IP orange, uh, climb to five thousand feet, talk to the FAC on this frequency. He'll vector you in, do some runs, and, and come home." He said, "Well, that, you know, that's a, a no-brainer." And so I did that, and you know, climbed to five thousand, talked to the FAC, went in, did a bunch of runs on a on some Belgian armor, and then he said, "There's some USF F4s coming behind, so you need to clear the target area eastbound before turning south." I didn't realize two things. One, my inertial nav system, which wasn't very reliable in the 104 anyway, and I hadn't paid any attention to it because it was a beautiful day, didn't need it. It had developed a terminal error of 090 for 150 miles, which meant that it thought home base was somewhere actually over in Czechoslovakia. The other thing I didn't realize was that the target area was already inside the buffer zone. Are you familiar with the buffer zone, the old buffer None. zone? No, no, not There was, a, there was the, the political border, and there was a buffer zone of 10 miles. And the only people that were allowed to fly in the buffer zone were the, the Germans, uh, the Americans, the Brits, and the Canadians because, you know, we were supposedly, you know, above average. <laughs> what I didn't appreciate was that the target was already inside the buffer zone. So I was within 10 miles from the border. And when they said e- the target area eastbound before turning south, well, I turned east. And I had a quick look and uh, at my nav system. so okay, I'm just going to do, I was at 5,000 feet squawking. You know, I wasn't hiding from anybody, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to do what was called a bit of a point to point, and I'll find the end of IP orange and then just follow it backwards home." So I launch off eastbound, doing a rough point to point to to what I thought was off of Baden. In fact, it was off of somewhere in Czechoslovakia. So I'm heading eastbound, and I've got lots of extra gas, and I'm just sort of wandering around looking for somebody to to play with. You know, we everybody used to bounce everybody over there all all the time. Yeah. So I'm looking for somebody to somebody to play with, and not finding anybody. And and the terrain is not looking like it like it did around the end of IP Orange. I said, mm, okay, there's there's something wrong here. So I climbed to to, to 20,000 feet, turned uh, west, tuned in the Frankfurt TACAM, which is a nav and it said 070 for 95 miles. And I said, whoa, that's not where I thought I was, but if you did stray, uh, over there, then there was, our air defense guys were monitoring you all the time. And if they saw somebody going, going a bad place, they would come up on guard and declare a brass monkey. You know, Cedar Mine declares a brass monkey, aircraft, yada, 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 you know, turn 240 and, and leave. And if you, and you, if you heard that and you weren't 100% sure where you were, then they might be talking to you. So you would turn 240 and, and go like hell.
1: Right, and brass monkey was sort of like the code word for brass monkey was a code word for you're the wrong place, a hole, and get (laughs) out of there. (laughs) Right,
0: and they might be talking. They might be talking to you. And I thought because they hadn't heard any of that, I was high. I was twenty thousand feet, and I was squawking. And I thought, you know, the border eastern border used to take a jog to the east before Czechoslovakia, and then turn south. I thought, geez, I must be down in that. I must be down in that corner because somebody would have said something. So I blithely motored at 20,000 feet and heading west towards Baden. And just by Frankfurt, these two American Phantoms jumped me, which was not, you know, they weren't very aggressive in those days, the Americans. But they, they jumped me and I said, no, oh, you jerk, now I don't have any gas to play. I'm just gonna have to go home. So I, we just went to, you know, 0.99, just subsonic and sort of ran away and did some big clearing turns and, and didn't see them anymore. So, okay, that's fine. So I let down in, into Baden, it was a beautiful day. And as I was approaching initial, you know, something sort of caught my eye, and and I looked, and, and this American phantom was coming out from underneath me, and looked further back, and there was another one there, about two or three miles back, uh, a couple thousand feet high, and I said, "Hmm, <laughs> I wonder where 070 for 95 from Frankfurt really is." And ironically, uh, the the call letters in the back of the airplane were AH, which is for Hawn hmm. Air Force Base, which I thought was a little ironic. They spelled it differently, but it was the same pronunciation. So I. You know, I said, hmm, I, th- I think something was wrong there. So I landed the taxi and went to the map and took out the string and plotted 070 for 95 from Frankfurt. And I was basically in the traffic pattern of, uh, of Airport, which was one of their big, big 21 bases at the time. And I uh, should have done touch and go. So anyway, the shit hit the fan. And of course, Wing Ops called and said, you know, where were you just now? I said, oh, I was just, you know, I- I've been here all day reading emails. <laughs> but, uh, so, was uh, the gig was up and, but, so, I got a, a reproof. It was called for, for negligence in, in mission planning, which was true. I hadn't done any. And uh, But what we found out afterwards is that uh, it wasn't the air defense guys that caught me coming back. It was Rhine radar, which is a civil radar. And these two American phantoms just happened to be going cross country. And the Rhine controller saw the target, high speed target coming out of the east zone, asked these Yanks if they cared to identify. And they said, hell yeah, that's more fun than going cross country. So they chased me down and Found out from my friends in our radar guys that, of course, I was just yeah. subsonic. Said no, they were doing about 1.4 to catch it because, of course, at that point they didn't didn't care about about making noise. Yeah. But what transpired was our air defense guys had not seen me going or coming back, and their guys had not seen me coming. They they saw me as I was turning by Airfort, and they scrambled uh, after me. But I was you know out of their area by that time. But I was about oh 30 35 miles across the. Uh, across the actual border. wow! And so it was a, it was a, so that's where I picked up my, my tactical call sign is Honski, H-A-W-N-S-K-I. And I had a friend on another squadron whose name was Jurkowski, And he said, well, you know, if you're going to fly in the East zone, I guess we'll have to give you a Russian sounding name. So I became Honski and I've been Honski ever since.
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a, a brilliant story.
0: <laughs> actually, it's a bit of a sequel to that. And two or three years later, I'm back in Cold Lake flying with Starfighter, and we're down at Luke Air Force Base just for a weekend with some airplanes, and, you know, Friday night in the bar chatting up this guy, uh, American pilot, He said, oh, what are you doing? His name was Jay, Jay Calloway, and he said, oh, where you been? What you done? Kind of thing. He said, oh, he flew F-4s in Europe. I said, where? He said, "He said Han. I said, when were you there? And he gave me the dates, and I said, this is a long shot, but you didn't by any chance, you know, intercept a 104, and he said, was that you? I said, was that you? He said, "Yeah." I said, "I told him I thought you were a German." He yeah, said, "Bullshit! You were flying on my wing, and I was landing in the bottom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so there. He, he eventually world. retires as a, as a three star, and I didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, and um, I mean, so presumably your air defense guy's got a real rocket as well. Oh,
0: you know? the well, I was told that uh, an American half colonel lost his job, and there was some some shit to pay because I mean, obviously it was my fault, but. Uh, yeah. They were, they were, I just, I put it off, you know, I just did a, a tactical evaluation of the air defense system, theirs and ours, and they both failed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, presumably they, uh, you know, they didn't see any indication of, uh, you know, the MiGs scrambling or anything like that at well, that point.
0: Well, they, they, this was all after the fact when they went back, yeah. I guess, and looked at tapes and, and, and so on. Uh, but I was, I mean, I was at 5,000 feet going 20,000 feet coming back. I was squawking, you know, like a big dog. So I wasn't hiding from anybody.
1: Yeah. So, so they were really asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Both sides. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. So you, when when do you finish in in Europe? When when do you go back to Canada?
0: Well, I came back uh, in '75 and went back to Cold Lake and instructed on the on the starfighter at the Operational Training Squadron. Did that for two and a half years and went off to be part of the new fighter aircraft program in Ottawa, which, you know, eventually resulted in us buying the, the CF-18. Right. And I flew the CF-18 until I retired in 94.
1: Okay. And the CF-18 is also known as? The Hornet. The Hornet. Yeah. The Hornet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Sorry. I'm, and we, I'm we flew that airplane in my in...
0: numbers. Right. Yeah. No worries. No worries. And we flew that airplane in the, in, in the Cold War in, in Europe after the after the Starfighter, until yeah. we finally left there.
1: Yeah, because I I read some of the, the you know there there was a high sort of casualty rate from flying the Starfighter because it was a w- well there plane. there
0: there was and again that's a relative term we didn't lose nearly as many airplanes as the Germans. You know the media nicknamed it the the Widowmaker, which was. Uh, you know, that came from the German experience, not ours. You would not find any Canadian who flew the airplane or worked on it who didn't love the airplane. Now, if you parked a Starfighter and an F-18 side-by-side and gave me my choice, I'd get into the Starfighter. Not to go to war in, because the F-18 is vastly more capable, but just to go fly. It was so damn much fun. And it was a very safe airplane. You know, you had to respect it. It had a flight envelope that, that if you didn't respect it, yeah, it would bite you in the ass. But as long as you respected it, it was, you know, I never had... Uh, a serious emergency, and you know, almost 2,000 hours in the airplane. I never had anything resembling a serious emergency. I almost died a few times, but it was always me, not the airplane. So, no, I, I absolutely loved the airplane, and I don't know anybody who flew the airplane who didn't love it.
1: Right. And and when you retired in in '94, what what rank were you then? Uh, Lieutenant Colonel. Right. Okay. I
0: had to, I had
1: a command of an F-18 squadron, which was you know for a
0: fighter pilot. You know that's kind of the pinnacle is is commanding commanding a fighter squadron, and I got through that, which was uh, which was the best job I'll ever have in my life. And I, I spent I spent ten years as a member of parliament, but that's that's a a sorry second compared to commanding a fighter squadron.
1: <laughs> easier to manage, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way, way easier. And, and sorry, way more fun. the the F eighteen squadron was that in uh, based in Canada. As well,
0: it, it was based in Cold Lake, but our our role when I was uh, CO was rapid reinforcement to Germany, to to NATO. So we would deploy the squadron a couple of times a year and and fly out of uh, Baden or Uh You know, we take about two thirds of the squadron, three quarters of the squadron at any one time. So we spent a lot of time in Europe, a lot of time over the Atlantic. You know, uh, air
1: refueling, you right. know, back
0: and forth. So yeah. it was it was it was tons of fun.
1: Yeah. And were you also flying intercepts against any of the to U-95s and things like that, or not? Yes,
0: yes. Now, I didn't... Personally, my, when, when I was commander of the squadron, we were strictly a NATO squadron uh, with a secondary air defence role. As time went by, then it became uh, totally dual-role air defence. And uh, and we were air defence in Europe when we were there. In Canada, we were training for Europe. But we did get involved in the in the bear Intercepts uh, along with the other squadrons in, in Canada. I did a, a couple... Uh, when I was actually a staff officer but in North Bay but flying the F-18 in Bagotville with one of the squadrons there I did a couple of them there but we would launch to uh, to Gander in Newfoundland because we would have intel that, that the bears were, were coming uh, and they would generally be transiting down to Cuba or back kind of thing. So I never got to actually do an intercept. We deployed to Gander a couple of times but the buggers turned around every time which they would do from time to time. They would, they would just turn around and go back so you never actually knew that our guys did a lot of intercepts on on bears either off the north uh, or the Arctic or or off the East Coast
1: yeah yeah no we we, we still have them flying into uh, or towards the UK even now same yeah. aircraft
0: well they yeah they still do the GI UK gap uh, thing yeah so you, you guys are, are doing that a lot and, and our guys do when we have guys I don't think they're there right now but we're we're part of the uh, I forget what they use, what they call the exercise, but we'll fly out of out of Iceland as part of the uh, air defense in, in that area. And we'll do that on a rotational basis. So when our guys are there, then you know if the bears are playing, then then they're playing with them as
1: well. Yeah, yeah. And are you still involved in um, you know the air force and museums and preservation and things like that? I-
0: Yeah, I am. Uh, I've been the since I got out. I've been the honorary colonel for a couple of uh, squadrons, Air Force squadrons. I'm involved somewhat with the museum here in in Edmonton. Uh, I'm still involved with with Air Force issues with our you know next generation fighter and and things like that. So I stay I stay you know pretty involved and I'm I'm, you know close to the senior leadership. Some of whom I like to be close to, and some of whom I'd rather be further away from. But that's always the case.
1: Right. That's the senior leadership of Canadian politics you're talking about there, or military?
0: No, I'm talking about the air force or the military. Oh, okay. okay, Well, and, and, and politics also, but that, that's a different story.
1: You know, it's not really part of our uh, our remit on this podcast. But uh, you being a, a member of parliament must have, uh, you know, that's a whole second career in itself.
0: Oh, it was, and I, you know, it, it's still the second best job I'll ever have. Nothing single top flying fighters, but. Uh, I mean, it was a held an opportunity to. Uh, we were in government. Uh, I was fortunate enough that my whole time, uh, our party was was in government. I was there with with Prime Minister Harper, and uh, I got to do a lot of stuff that that you know most people you know, would never get to do. You know, spend a lot of time in Afghanistan. I was the what we called the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Defence, and we were heavily into Afghanistan at that time, as as you guys were. Mm-hmm. And so I did was there seven times, a bunch of Christmases and spent a lot of time doing doing that and, and just being involved in in defense and security and, and public safety issues but my favorites were being involved in, in the defense issues
1: no i can imagine i can imagine um laurie is, is there any other great anecdotes that we've not covered <laughs> i don't think you've probably got any to beat the uh check airspace one but
0: well that one yeah that one was probably one of the one of the better ones i mean there's lots of Stories of shenanigans in the in the in the mess and so on, but uh, uh, yeah. actually we had one when I was flying starfighters, and we were, we did, did squadron exchanges every year with you know, other NATO squadrons, and uh, we did one exchange with 14 Squadron at, at Bruggen, It was a, a Phantom Squadron uh, RAF, mm-hmm. and so we were up there with a bunch of starfighters, and, and Friday night we all trundled off to Wildenrath, which was another raft base for, for beer call. And so, as, as I think you know, Brits love singing uh, bar songs and playing the piano and, and burning the odd piano. And so we're all gathered around the piano in the mess in, in Wildenrath, and and uh, somebody's banging away on the piano, we're singing, drinking songs, and we thought, well, clearly this piano is here to be burnt. So we, you know, very stealthily not, you know, sort of sidled the piano to the to the side door and you know proceeded to take it outside and and the brit tradition is you have to beat the piano to death with a steel beer keg into small enough pieces that will pass through a toilet seat so and then you burn it so we proceeded to do that and we had we had some help from, from some of the brits who were around and so we proceeded to do that and pass it through a toilet seat and somebody found some gasoline or something we lit this thing on fire and and guys were kind of you know leaping through the fire some with less clothes on than others and and we're all having a good old time. And and the Brit Air Commodore, who was the station commander, sidled up to our squadron commander and said, hmm. And as he was Lieutenant Colonel. He said, well, Colonel Hutt, I understand your your squadron fund is rather flush at the moment. And Hutt said, well, no, sir. Actually, we're quite broke. He said, oh, that's a shame. You see, that's that's not our piano. <laughs> <laughs> it it, it, it belongs to the NAFI, and they're using it in their little little Theater performance tomorrow night, <laughs> and our CEO said, "Well, sir, I'm afraid they're not." <laughs> so we we paid, I think it was five thousand pounds or some silly amount of money. We had to come up with to to, uh, to pay for the piano. But but two weeks later, 14 Squadron visited us in, in Baden, and we happened to have two grand pianos. Theirs was an old upright piano. Yeah. We had two grand pianos in the mess, and of course, tit for tap, they decided they would they would return the the favor. So fortunately, we had a, a new one and a slightly older one. Fortunately, just by the luck of the draw, they picked on the older one. So they proceeded to, you know, push the grand piano to the, the parking lot uh, and set it on fire. Of course, the grand piano, so the wood there is really, really hard. So it burns with a lot of heat. So this thing was on fire and everybody was having a good time. And the fire guys arrived, of course, and they said, OK, we're just going to monitor this. And it burned so hot that it it collapsed the parking spot. It happened to the base commander's parking spot that this thing was burning in and it, it collapsed the, uh, the concrete. So there's a big, big hole with, with this remains of this burnt piano in the, in the bottom of it. So so they, oh. they had to pay for that one. That was fine. So we, we, we were all evil. I mean, there's tons of stories like that about just the shenanigans that went on that were, um, yeah, property was damaged, but everybody everybody paid up for what they did. It didn't break anything
1: maliciously. I mean, you could call that malicious, but it was we kind of called it fun
0: yeah um, but you didn't break anything. You didn't break anything it was irreplaceable
1: yeah yeah way. presumably the uh grand piano was far more expensive than a stand-up then oh oh yeah
0: yeah so they uh they won up this but uh but that was okay and uh, i mean there's tons <laughs> of stories like that uh that went around that, yeah uh, and that was that was a fun i mean just the i mean the stuff you'd be in jail for today that was just commonplace I and mean, i i am going to write a book people bug me to write a book for years and and, and I have to get off my ass and do it. And it's going to be called, it's going to have, you know, a military side and a uh, political side, but the title is going to be, it seemed like a good idea at the time <laughs> because so many things seemed like a good idea at the time Yeah. <laughs> on a Friday night. And then Monday morning when you're in front of the CEO with your hat off and your heels together, captain, that was really stupid. Yes, sir. I won't do that again. <laughs> well, until next Friday.
1: How did you get on with the Germans and the Dutch and the others? Did you get up to similar shenanigans with them?
0: Uh, well, it was mostly us and the Brits because uh, we're kind of you know a little bit cut from the same same cloth, so to speak. Allegedly, uh, the yeah. A lot of, <laughs> yeah. Allegedly, uh, the, the Dutch were a lot of fun. The Germans were a little more uh, well tight-assed would be a word, uh, but they had some good guys too. You know, I met some uh, some terrific like wartime people, uh, Adolf Galland and Gunter Rall. Oh wow! You know, they would come. As, uh, as guest speakers at, at we had Gunter Rawl was one and he oh, I forget how many kills he had but it was 275 or some some ridiculous number and uh, you know guest speaker it was in the early 70s so it wasn't all that long after the after the war and of course he told some some great war stories and, and afterwards after the dinner of course everybody's in the bar hanging around and chatting you knew where Rawl was because there was this cluster of, of fighter pilots around him just hanging on on whatever he said. Yeah, I mean, regardless of of who was on which side, you know, in the Second World War, it didn't matter anymore. Yeah, and these guys were guys with with unbelievable experience to to share, and and they were happy to share it. So we we got along, you know, with with everybody really over there. But uh, yeah, I mean, us, us and the Brits, I say we're yeah we pretty similar.
1: Yeah, well, Raul, I think were most of his kills were over the Eastern Front. as They well. they were
0: yeah
1: yeah. yeah. I forget yeah. he was
0: shot down multiple multiple times, as most of them were. But Eric Hartman lived not too far from from Baden, where we were stationed, and he was at a, a dinner. Uh, and he's long since gone now. But uh, you know, he had you know three, 352 kills. He was the number number one guy. So you know, to get to meet guys like that, even just casually, you know, in the same room and you know, listening to them, I mean, it was was pretty special.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think Galland was uh, right at the end. He was in command of a Me 262 squadron in uh, yes. Austria, yeah. wasn't he? So he was flying jets. Yeah. You know, right he, he, was, he
0: was one of the first, first jet, jet commanders.
1: Apparently. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Laurie, I have taken enough of your time this evening.
0: No, it was a pleasure. I always enjoy talking about what was you know, the best part of my life.
1: Yeah, no, and and I'm delighted to hear hear your story. I mean, it, it means so much more when you hear it, you know, sort of firsthand like that, when you mm-hmm. hear it with somebody's yeah. voice rather than from the... from the page and what i'm trying to do is is capture these stories and you know make people aware of almost the hidden sacrifices that occurred during the cold war well
0: there was and there was there was an awful lot and i i mean my own logbook i went back a while ago and i counted i think 39 or 40 friends that were lost over the years not all in the cold war you know other training accidents whatever but but yeah, there's, a, you know, there's a price to pay. You know, the old story: freedom isn't free. Yeah, and we can't forget
1: that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that would be a uh, a very good note for us to uh, finish on. Well, that's all we had time for. However, there's more information in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com dot slash the word episode and the number sixty three. If you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. It really helps to raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pod. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.